Welcome to the Books and Travel podcast. I'm Jo Francis Penn, thriller and dark fantasy author, bringing you escape and inspiration about unusual and fascinating places, as well as the deeper side of books and travel. You can find the episode show notes at booksandtravel.page. And if you enjoy thrillers set in international locations, download one of my ebooks for free at jfpen.com forward slash free. Hello, travellers. I'm Joe Francis Penn. And in this episode, I'm talking to Ginny Reddy about finding magic in the natural landscape. There are places where the veil is thin and where we can connect with the other, if only we learn how to listen. Ginny and I discuss the attraction of islands and labyrinths, aspects of pilgrimage, seeing our local area with new eyes, and whether those of us with wanderlust in our souls can ever find home. This connection with the landscape is a topic I love to talk about and have personally experienced these thin places, a moment that could be called spiritual or magic or an encounter with God or the goddess or universe or whatever you believe in. I often thread these experiences into my novels and am intending to write more about it in my own travel memoir, which is emerging slowly. I might also put them together into a solo episode at some point. But in the meantime, I hope you enjoy the interview with Ginny. Ginny Reddy is an award-winning author and journalist. Her latest book is Wonderland, a search for magic in the landscape. Welcome, Ginny. Hi, Jo. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, I'm excited to talk to you. I love the book. I've got it here in hardback on my desk. Oh, brilliant. <laughs> it's also just come out in paperback, so. Oh, there you go. Uh, so let's get into it because you, it's just wonderful. I love it. And you write about seeking the wild unseen and you're yearning to connect with the other in the land. And I wanted to start with a sort of talk about magic. The book is about a search for magic, but what do you mean by magic in this context? Right. Okay. So I should give this some context so people will know what I mean. So I've been a a travel writer for some time before I came to write the book. Um, And on my travels, I'd had opportunities to meet people from Indigenous cultures, people for whom the idea of being in relationship with a a sentient, animate earth wasn't unusual, was, was something pretty normal. And the idea that there is human and then more than human life and we're just one part of the whole um, was an idea that really you know way of being that really resonated with me so this idea of wanting to develop a relationship with a responsive universe this wild unseen is something I wanted to explore in my own way you know I was asking myself might it be possible for a regular person like myself to experience a glimpse of the world as seen through these eyes. So by magic, I mean, I guess, the understanding that as humans, we're just one form of intelligence and that we exist in a world of multiple intelligences and and asking how might we communicate with some aspect of this intelligence or intelligences. So really, I wanted to inject a spiritual dimension into my roaming. and, And so the kind of Seed, seed for the journey was, was sown that way. 
So I'm talking about, so while I, I'm, I'm going into landscapes and while I'm appreciating the physical beauty of the landscapes, there's a kind of parallel journey going on while I'm, where I'm trying to open up to the spirit of the landscape. Mm, no, that's fantastic. And I absolutely, I resonated with the book because I feel the same way. I feel that there are these places, as you write as well, where the veil is thin and where I've had these experiences where I felt like, yeah, there's more than human life here. I might only be the, be the only human here right now, but I am not alone uh, amongst nature. And I think one of the frustrating things is that this doesn't happen all the time. So I wondered, uh, what are your thoughts on how can we open our minds or our spirits, I guess, to be more aware of these places? Okay, so it's it's not just places, but also the idea that all living creatures in within the natural world have a sentience. So animals, plants, birds, trees, as well as what we would call places. But in terms of opening our minds, I guess it's to do with the sincerity of of of, of our intention about listening deeply, slowing down, asking questions, putting questions out there. And kind of entering into this with a beginner's mind in a spirit of playful experimentation and then letting go. So you have to you have to want to fashion your own journey. And that takes takes time and dedication. And it's not a, a kind of dial-up experience. You can't you can't prescribe it in a way. You have to want to to go on this journey yourself and create your own journey within your own life and relating to to questions you may be asking yourself yeah because I feel like a lot of I mean you're a travel writer and, and you've written articles and various things where the focus has not been on that spiritual side and I feel like a lot of travel writing now is almost Instagrammy, sort of 10 best places to go in yeah. wherever <laughs> yes I mean I I was a travel writer so I you know I did those sorts of things myself too but I found that as time went on and I was drawn increasingly to these wilder landscapes and when I'd have encounters with, with people from Indigenous cultures, it just opened up a whole new way of relating to places. So it wasn't just about the destination. It was about honouring the spirits of the people who were the ancestors of, of a place and going there with that intention and then discovering that really interesting things would begin to unfold when you went to a place embodying that kind of spirit of, of gratitude and openness. Uh, and then magical things would begin to happen. And I call them, I call them synchronicities that would begin, would begin to unfold. So I just feel that there's this whole other layer out there and we all can access these things, but we have to want to and in, in our own way. And, you know, you could too, anybody could. It's, it's just a, a question of needing to slow down and listen deeply. And I wonder about that, that listening, because I've definitely had more of these experiences when I've been on my own, as opposed to even with my husband or with other people around. Do you think you need to be alone to, to sense this? Well, I find it helps for me because there are fewer distractions. If you're chattering away with somebody, you're less likely to open, be open to what's going on around you. You're less likely to be sensitive to atmosphere, to, to, you're less, less likely to be truly present. But I found, uh, you know, I have a friend that I, a mate that I travel with sometimes, and we're on the same wavelength. And interesting things have happened when we've traveled together because we've often set joint intentions 
and travel together in that spirit. So yeah, it, it can you can have interesting experiences if you travel with somebody else for sure. Mm. And uh, one of the places you write about is Iona, and you do talk about islands as well in general. But for Iona in particular, I guess for people listening, where is it, and why did the island leave such an impression on you? So Iona is one of the uh, Hebridean islands in the Outer Hebrides in Scotland. And so at this point in the book, it's probably about halfway through the book. And I decided I wanted to put my money where my mouth was. And I was going to go to Iona, which if anybody, if, you, if, if you've been, it's a 12 hour journey and it's not something you do spontaneously. I think it involved, you know, it's 12 hours, even with a flight, a train, um, you know, uh, this is from possibly. from London. Yeah, from from London. Sorry, from London. Yeah, I mean, obviously, if you if you live on neighbouring Mull, it's a lot a lot shorter, um, a shorter journey. <laughs> so I was going to go to Iona, and I was going to ask the land or the spirit of the land. And when I say that, I don't really know what I you know what I mean exactly because I'm I'm a human. I'm not in spirit form. I'm not a shaman. I'm just a regular person. But I was going to ask this spirit of the land to guide me, and you know, I, whatever it. I would feel guided to do, I would do. And so I didn't have any plans. And when I told a travel writer friend about this, um, he was a bit, you know, skeptic, he was a bit skeptical. And he said, you mean you're just going to rock up there and be a bit spontaneous? And I said, no, that's not what I mean. This is different. I'm going up with an intention and it's, it's different. So I got on the train. And then I think by the time I got to Glasgow, I had this email from an acquaintance and he said, out of the blue, he said in this email, if you're going to Iona, why don't you try looking for this temple in the land and ask yourself in what dimension does this temple exist? And I was just overjoyed when I saw this email because I thought, that's it. That's my mission. That's what I'm going to do. It's the land. This is the land speaking to me. So I went to Iona and I was very excited and I went around asking people you know, quite randomly, do you, have you heard of this temple in the land? And, you know, first person was, was quite dismissive. And I mean, that was the first person I spoke to on the island, I think, and she was quite dismissive. I asked somebody else and yes, they could, they could, they could see it somewhere on the island. It was actually her husband, this woman's husband saw it on a Google map. And I thought, well, that's not very exotic. (laughs) That's not very spiritual. Yeah. And so it, it turned out, I, I was sort of going, bouncing around from person to person being sent here and there but there was always some resistance to my finding this place one person would say it doesn't exist the other would say oh it's too difficult to get to you just can't find it or whatever it was I felt like there was some resistance to my going to this place and I got a little bit fed up and so after four days of this I decided to let go of the idea altogether and you know I was on my own it's absolutely beautiful it's a place of pilgrimage both secular and and otherwise and the beaches are gorgeous and I just thought oh sod it I'm just going to enjoy the island and then on the last day I so I'd let go of this this idea so on the last day I walked into a cafe and I happened to see a woman I'd met three years earlier randomly at a conference in Scotland and I went up to her and I told her what I was doing what I had been doing and she said, well, why don't we try and find this together? And I said, okay, why not? I, you know, I'm leaving the next day, why not? So we got up out of the uh, cafe. And as we were leaving the cafe, she randomly bumped into a woman she knew and who she hadn't seen for a year. 
And this woman was going for a walk and we asked her where she was going and she mentioned this temple. (laughs) And I just could not believe it. I just, you know, my jaw just dropped open. And not only was she going there, she was willing to take us there. And so for me, you know, that whole experience, and it wasn't that difficult to find it either, but that whole experience, it just sent shivers up my spine. The series of events and the way they unfolded to me, it kind of felt like the language and I, um, the land in, I think in the book I talk about the land and I doing a kind of pas de deux and neither of us quite speaking the other's language, but trying to reach out. And I kind of felt like this connection had been made in this way because of the way things unfolded. And so we went to, to this uh, temple in the land and I, I don't want to say too much about it because I wrote about it in the book, but yeah, it was, it was a very interesting experience. Yeah, and that's definitely the synchronicity idea. I've had similar experiences too. And also what you've just described there is a classic quest. You know, you decide you want to go and do something and then there's obstacles in the way and then there's a guard, a guardian or a guide that comes and helps you. And it, it's almost archetypal. I know, but it, but the, the most amazing thing, thing is it happened, you know? And, and when you experience something like that, it expands your field of perception and you think, well, if that can happen, what else can happen? But of course you don't want to attach to those things too much. You know, the, you kind of want those things to happen, but not to put too much pressure to make those things happen because that, that stops them from happening. Yeah, I think that's important. If you often, if you do sort of, I'm going to go to this place and have this amazing experience, you know, it, it not, might not happen, but you'd actually given up at that point. You'd let yes. it go and it just sort of released it to the world. Yes. And later I called up the acquaintance who suggested I go and find the temple. And I said to him, you'll never believe what happened. And so this man who's, you know, well-versed in, in, in things to do with landscape and energies and the landscape and all that kind of thing, and he's actually a scholar, he said to me, well, I kind of did that on purpose because I thought if the land wanted you to, you would find this temple. It, w- it was, if the land accepted you, it would, it would help you to find it. And so that sent another shiver up my spine. And then I, I wonder about islands in general, and you mentioned Lindisfarne in the book as well, in that islands are cut off from the mainland. They're harder to get to. They often have quite distinct accents, for example, or they have distinct you know, subcultures in a way. Do you, do you think there's something different about islands and islanders in a way? Yeah, well, I actually grew up on an island. I grew up in, on the island of Montreal even though I was born in in the UK. And I grew up with water at the end of my street, with the St. Lawrence River at the end of my street. I I have I love islands. I love that cut-off remote feeling. I think there is something in that. I've never, you know, lived as an islander. I can't provide the kind of insights that an islander might provide. But I'm I'm just really drawn to them. And I think I think, yeah, there is maybe there's something in the air there, that, that feeling of, of it's being its own entity and, and things can happen on islands in the way that they can't in the mainland. Yeah, I, I wrote a Viking thriller that ended on Iona very dramatically. So I, 
I love it. It's a you know incredibly beautiful place. But you mentioned pilgrimage there, and uh, in the book I've got a quote here. You say a pilgrimage walk is about loosening your death grip on everyday life. So um, many people, the word pilgrimage. I mean, I'm not religious, and but I've done pilgrimage as well, and I feel like the word pilgrimage doesn't need to be religious anymore. So how how do you? And I think you feel the same way. So how do you yes. suggest? we can incorporate pilgrimage? What are the aspects of it? Well, I mean, pilgrimage is really an opportunity for reflection, a chance to ask a question. You know, we all have things we want answering, things we want in our lives, things we want to let go of. So you can choose a question to reflect on or an intention to carry with you and kind of create a walk around this, a kind of purpose, purposeful walk and you you sort of potentize it by declaring your intention. And I think the Pilgrimage Trust, which is co-founded by Guy Hayward, I think he calls it a, a walk determined by your heart and activated by, by your feet. So it's helpful to have a, a destination to give it some definition, but it can be anything really. It could be a, a park near you, it could be a favorite spot. It, does, it doesn't really matter. It's the intention that matters. So yeah, pilgrimage, it can be secular or it can be religious, you know, I'm not religious. And so, but for me, it's, it's a meaningful way to journey. Hmm. And could you tell us about uh, the one in the book in Cornwall, which I thought was really interesting? Yeah. So that's the St. Michael's way. It goes from one side of Cornwall to the other, and it's a day long pilgrimage. It's 13, I think it's 13 miles And it's actually an official part of the Camino de Santiago. And there are even seashells along the way, which I wasn't, I was surprised about. And so a friend and I just decided to walk this and we slightly had different intentions. I think I just wanted, I wanted delight. I wanted to experience magical things. Really, I think if I'm honest, I wanted interesting things to happen on this walk. And uh, a friend, the friend I was with, I think she wanted to change something in her life. So, so we went on this walk and I think the walk itself was, was nice. I, I wouldn't, you know, the coastal bits were gorgeous, really gorgeous. There are many interesting points where we stopped and we took pictures and we took notes and we tried to feel, you know, get into the feeling of, of the thing that the walk itself didn't feel like a pilgrimage walk to me. I mean, I, I was expecting to see people walking along and waving and kind of that sort of camaraderie and, we didn't really feel that on the walk, but I kind of felt like we were very faithful to to this pilgrimage route. And we'd even downloaded these notes from the Pilgrimage Trust. So we went into it, into it with the right spirit and we tried to be very present with what appeared. But the real reward came the day after. It was almost like we did the work of the pilgrimage. I think there was one part on the walk where you were supposed to, there was some mythology around a giant. And if you wanted to, to right past wrongs, you could you, you had to find this water and carry the water to, a, to another part of the pilgrimage and, and deposit it there. And we did all this. We did everything. So we were very faithful to it. And the next day, we were just chilling out and we were going for a walk on a part of the, uh, a part of, I think it's called St. Ives Island uh, Peninsula. And we came across this dolphin and we thought this was wonderful, but then this, this dolphin kind of preoccupied us for a bit and we carried on walking. And then we discovered, we saw this amazing double rainbow and I know it sounds crazy, but it was like nobody else around us could see this rainbow. 
And <laughs> we were leaping up and down and there were teenagers next to us and they weren't even looking at it. And there was a Japanese couple and they weren't even looking at it. And we, we kind of felt we were still in this liminal space. And maybe it was incredibly egocentric to think that this rain, double rainbow was there just for us. And, you know, maybe we had really vivid imaginations, but that's how it felt to us. And it was just this really beautiful sight. I guess in a way it doesn't matter, you know, what it was or wasn't. It's how it made us feel. And it was really nourishing. Yeah, I've also found that the gifts of pilgrimage come later. I did uh, the Pilgrim's Way to Canterbury from London. And when I arrived, I just was full of disappointment. And I was really tired, obviously. And I was like, why haven't I had some massive insight into the world? And then the next month, the following month, I had this huge burst of creativity and a load of realizations that didn't happen on the pilgrimage, but happened later. So I wonder if that's actually a common experience of pilgrimage that the gifts come later I I think maybe it is I find that often with journeys it's it's later even even now you know um now nowadays I think I often intentionally go for a walk if I want to stimulate my creativity as a writer and the ideas don't come on the walk I'm just walking the ideas definitely come when I finish the walk though Yeah, I think there's some kind of psychological rest that can go on when the body is engaged. (laughs) Yeah, and there's something to do with walking, the way it stimulates the brain, I think. The left and right hemispheres of the brain, I think, are are stimulated when we're we're walking. I, I remember reading that somewhere. Yeah. So one of the other things that was quite exciting is that when I was reading your book, I discovered this worldwide labyrinth locator. And what is hilarious is I live right next to one on Salisbury Hill and in Somerset. And I, right. I went and visited it and put a picture on Instagram, you know, because I was like, I've been walking past this for oh years now. And I visited labyrinths in other countries and churches and different places. But I walked past this one locally to me and hadn't really become aware of it so I wanted to thank you for that but also ask you why do you think labyrinths have this sort of archetypal attraction and what's been your experience? Well first of all I think it's interesting that you saw the labyrinth after you'd read the book because isn't it fascinating how sometimes things are there very nearby and we just don't see them yeah right so I think that's interesting for me partly it's to do with the visual appeal the spiral it's kind of land art and equally I find mazes appealing too but for anybody who doesn't know the difference between the two is that a, a labyrinth is a single spiral with one entrance and one exit and it's it's long been associated with with inner journeys, with finding yourself. And a maze is just the opposite. A maze has dead ends with twists and turns, and it's all about escapism, about losing yourself. So labyrinths, you know, are found all over the world, in deserts, at the foot of mountains, in forests and beaches. They're made from all kinds of materials. You can see them on the floor of cathedrals, on coins in ancient times. People have walked them for contemplation, for serenity. They featured in mythology. I like it. I see it as a kind of land art. And it's one, for me, it's one that kind of teeters on the mystical and it brings an otherness to the landscape. So I I saw it as a kind of portal, as a way of altering, potentially altering my my relationship with the landscape or the way I experienced or viewed the landscape. 
So in Wonderland, I, I wrote about how in London, I'd seen a labyrinth printed on a tube wall. And, and that got me thinking. And so that's when I Googled, the, you know, came up with the, the worldwide labyrinth locator. And that kind of set me down um, a rabbit hole to this labyrinth overlooking the sea on a, a private nature reserve in Cornwall. And it looks so extraordinary, almost like a UFO. So I decided I was going to visit and start my book's journey there. And people talk about the oracle-like powers of a labyrinth, of its ability to act as a lightning rod for an answer to your question. And I thought I'd go there and I'd kind of ask a question about my journey. What was it that I was really seeking to connect with? And that's kind of what happened, really. And when you, I guess we, we just talked about walking there and uh, a lot of people will walk a labyrinth, walk the path. And even though you can see, is, is that the other issue with a maze? A maze has walls and you can't see where you're going. Whereas a, whereas a, a labyrinth, you can see what where you're going, but it's still a path round and round. Yeah, there's something quite, I think there's something quite meditative about a labyrinth. And maybe, you know, it's something in, in maybe it's something to do, maybe it's something physical and your two feet are walking and you're stimulating your brain, uh, your left and your right hemispheres of your brain and stimulating your cre- creativity. Um, maybe it has to do with that. Maybe it's just the walking round and round. It's meditative and it helps you to find your answer. And maybe as you walk, you're peeling back layers. And I, I don't know, I'm not an expert, but I I set out to ask a question and or to try to define for myself what I was seeking in in, in seeking magic in the landscape. And I hoped that this uh, labyrinth might provide me with some answers. No, definitely. And it's funny, the poster you mentioned in the tube with that kind of labyrinth image, I know exactly the one you mean. It's in my head now. I, I oh, remember it. Right. but but it's interesting because you do talk in the book about the importance of seeing and appreciating your own country with the eyes of a tourist which you know which is what you did with that picture in the tube really is look at it in a different way whereas a lot of commuters would just walk past it so how can we do that more effectively I mean like me seeing my local labyrinth finally noticing it was really there um how can we pay more attention or look at things in this different way I think it's all about orientating ourselves towards curiosity, you know, setting our radar, our compass to curiosity, to seeking out delight. I do, um, to, to following your curiosity, to exploring, to visiting places we haven't seen before, or even if they're close by, but it's the wanting that it's placing all that at the forefront of your mind, I think. Mm. And then I, coming back to the word magic, I also wonder if it's a bit, sort of allowing yourself to be a bit more woo-woo because we both said we're not religious but we're using words that people have certain expectations around I guess and you've said several times you're just a normal person and I wonder if it's allowing ourselves to experience these moments of magic rather than pushing them away because maybe they're a bit weird. Well I think within the western mindset or within western culture people can be very dismissive of these views and I think it goes back to colonialism the indigenous beliefs um, often were often oral traditions and they were not allowed to be part of mainstream knowledge bases um, why because of whoever was creating those mainstream knowledge bases was uh, afraid of difference afraid of their own 
dominant narratives and beliefs being uprooted. And that kind of gets embedded in, in, in books and in consciousness and carries on down so that it becomes okay to be dismissive of these things. And also, I think Descartes, in his meditations, he, he dismissed anything that wasn't material and physical as, as illusory. And, and that's, that belief is carried down too. So I think these, these, have, these go back to um, historical contexts as to why we're also afraid of, of being really what we are or really talking about these things that, that go beyond our belief systems in, in Western culture. And then I, I think another reason I noticed the the labyrinth is because during the pandemic, we've walked the same route over and over again, you know, during the various lockdowns. And I feel like I've seen more than I did before because it's been different seasons and I've just done it, done the same thing a lot more and appreciated it a lot more. Do, do you think this is something that the pandemic, maybe a gift of the pandemic? It's been terrible in so many ways, obviously still going on, but do you think it has changed people's appreciation of, of the local space? Oh, definitely. I mean, we were very lucky at the beginning of lockdown and I live outside London and we had beautiful weather and I would be out on my bike or walking, you know, my one allowed walk, I think, a day and discovering places nearby that I hadn't even known existed. And I've lived here for years. That brought me enormous joy. And also, like you say, walking the same places in different weather and feeling a kind of growing intimacy with places that are nearby. It's a, it's a relationship like any other, I guess, in the same way that you get to know a human. You're getting to know your local natural space, your your local park or your green space. And, and it, it also goes beyond that too, depending on your own mindset. I mean, I like to think of myself as a human being but just one part of the bigger picture. Everything in nature, in the natural world, is 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 part of the bigger family of beings. So if I'm going for a walk, wherever I may be, I, I, I often don't feel alone. I often feel, well, I'm kind of surrounded by my wider family in a way. Hmm. And you mentioned family there and your home being just outside London there. And you've got this mixed cultural background, even your accent uh, yeah. is part Canadian. And uh, so how does your family history and experience play into your travel and your sense of home? OK, so I was born in the UK in, in Wimbledon in London. I grew up in Canada, in Quebec. My mum and dad uh, were raised in South Africa and their ancestry is Indian, South Asian. So these days, I like to say I'm able to see with more than a single pair of eyes. I'm able to see the world through maybe four pairs of eyes, three pairs of eyes. And and my relationship to a place has so many dimensions to it, as it is for anybody, including my own background, my race, my gender, my outlook on life, my interests. And when I travel, and I've traveled quite widely, I'm often at the back of my mind, alongside my excitement. I'm also asking myself, how will I be received when I go to this place? Will I stand out like a sore thumb? Will, will I be welcome? Will I fit in? Or will I be too invisible, as I sometimes have felt in India? But, you know, there are advantages and disadvantages to our respective identities. And I also, I find it sometimes I find it easier to connect with people from Indigenous backgrounds because there's for them there's no fear of exploitation I have no whiff of colonialism about me no matter how distant um, sometimes women open up to me more because I am a woman 
But this idea of home, I think that's a really interesting question. And if I'm honest, it's one I'm still grappling with. I think um, home, you know, if, if you come from many places or more than one place, home really has to be a sense of ease within yourself, I think. Mm, yeah, it's something I ponder a lot. And I've had a couple of guests on the show talk about third culture kids. Have you, have you heard that term? Uh, I haven't, no, but I, I kind of guess what you mean. Yeah, and I think, and and I'd never heard it too. And this is obviously British people haven't heard this because <laughs> it was a, an African a person told me about an Australian. But yeah, these third culture kids are sort of grow up in different cultures and maybe can never find one home because we yeah. feel at home in so many different places. Yes, at home or never quite at home. Both, you know, mm. never entirely. I never in. Wimbledon is my home. I love it here, but I'm I'm not entirely of the place. And if I go back to Montreal, oh, I have this greatest wonderful feeling of nostalgia because I grew up there and I have all kinds of gorgeous memories there. But but I don't really fit in there anymore either. And I'm not sure I really fitted in when I was there. We were the only Indian family in the neighborhood. And if I go to India, I look like everybody, but I'm not really Indian. Indian. And so, and in South Africa, it's even, you know, it's even more a sense of dislocation, I guess. Well, my parents are South African, but whereas what is my connection to this country? Uh, and sometimes it comes through the music or just the sense of, of, of something to do with the, the earth or the, the scent of the place. And so, yeah, I kind of understand that whole third party, third culture, culture. thing. Mm. But I think if you are able to feel at ease wherever you are in the world, well, that's an incredible gift. Yeah, I agree. And I do. I mean, you said there's sort of dislocation. I wonder whether the edge of dislocation that we feel in different places actually is what makes us the type of people who love traveling. And because this is a common theme on this show and the people I talk to in the books, you know, the travel books we read, this desire for other places, which the wanderlust or whatever is is in all of us yeah and maybe it's also driven by a, a desire to recreate feelings of belonging maybe we travel because parts of ourselves are in other parts of the world I don't know oh well I could ask you questions forever but we're almost out of time so apart from your own book what are a few books about nature or travel in general that you recommend so I was thinking about this and I thought I'd go with a couple of books that I read recently and one a little while back. I've just finished a book called Spirit Run by Noé Alvarez, and I hope I'm pronouncing his first name and last name correctly. So that's quite, it's quite an extraordinary book. It's about a, a Mexican-American who goes on a marathon through st stolen lands in Canada, the US and Mexico. And he does it in order to honor his parents' struggles and, and their migration to America and to find a sense of peace and a sense of belonging within himself. And on his journey, it's quite a difficult one with all this running, but he also, he discovers ceremony and he learns to connect to the land in a way that is, is beautiful as opposed to the hardship that his parents experienced when they were toiling on the land. So that's a book I highly recommend. It's done really well. I think it's done quite well in the States and I'm shouting about it all across my social media because I love it. The other book is a novel called The Overstory by Richard Powers. It's a beautiful book. It won the Pulitzer Prize. It's a novel 
And the characters, the protagonists in it are both humans and trees. Hmm. It's quite an inclusive book too, culturally speaking. And I really, I really loved it. It's a special book. Uh, Book number three is one I read recently and it's not coming out till later this year. It's called Small Bodies of Water by Nina Mingya Powells. And she has, I think, uh, she has mixed New Zealand and Chinese parentage. And it's coming out later this year. And it's an interesting book of essays, kind of meditations to do with water as the theme, but they take you into themes of belonging and journeys. And I thought it was quite an original way of, of, and poetic too, way of looking at the world. And I really like this book. And the fourth one is a book called Afropean by Joni Pitts. Um, which has won a few awards it mixes travel writing and history and it really blew me away because I'd not read a book set in Europe which was written through this lens which is basically he was trying to find a kind of unifying Africa in Europe African cultures in Europe uh, and he writes brilliantly so so those are my recommendations Oh, those are fantastic. And uh, I always go away with like, okay, go buy some more books. Yes. <laughs> That's always good. Brilliant. So where can people find you and your books online? Okay, so I'm on Twitter and Instagram uh, at Ginny underscore Ready. And uh, Ginny is spelled J-I-N-I. Ready is spelled R-E-D-D-Y. Uh, on Instagram, I'm at Ginny Ready 20. I have a website, GinnyReady.co.uk. Wonderland is out in paperback and in hardback in the UK. It's coming out in paperback in the States and Canada in June. You can find it in all good bookshops. Brilliant. Well, thanks so much for your time, Ginny. That was great. Thank you for having me. Love talking to you. Thanks for joining me today on the Books and Travel podcast. I hope you found a moment of escape. You can find the episode show notes at booksandtravel.page And if you enjoy thrillers set in international locations, download one of my books for free at jfpen.com forward slash free. Happy travels until next time.